Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Peter, he wrote this letter in about 62 to 64 AD, and he had a mixed audience. This was both Jewish and Gentile believers, but they had been scattered across the Roman Empire. Chapter 1, verse 1 says they covered quite a large area. They were in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what that means is basically they were everywhere in the Roman Empire. And they were being mercilessly persecuted at this time. Many think that this could be the great persecution under Emperor Nero, which took place in AD 64, after the burning of Rome. To make a long story short, somebody set fire to Rome. And everybody naturally blamed Nero. He was just that type of guy. If, you, if someone sets fire to Rome, it was probably Nero's fault. So Nero got scared, and he blamed the Christians. And he put the, he put the blame on them. He's like, you know what? The Christians, these people, they, they burned Rome. And so everyone was like, the Christians burned Rome. They're horrible people. And they started persecuting the Christians. And the persecution got so bad, it was across the whole empire, and... It, so bad that three years later, the Apostle Peter was even martyred under this persecution. But whether or not that's the situation, we don't know. It either happened at that time or right before it. So what we do know is that persecution was bad and it was about to get a lot worse. To get a feeling of what these, ex- what these believers were going through, you could describe their situation with one word, exile. I'm going to take you through, we're going to kind of skip around in First Peter a little bit because you need to get the background. Um, you can try to keep up if you want, but probably just take a note of the reference or a little piece of the verse as I go along because I need to explain to you what an exile is. In First Peter 1, verse 1, it begins, To those who are elect exiles. And one seventeen repeats the same thing. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. In 2 verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. An exile does not belong, doesn't have a home. He's not, he, he's just not where he's supposed to be. And I'm going to give you four descriptions of what an exile is. First of all, an exile is unknown. The word for exile literally means stranger. Strangers are unknown. They're foreign. They're like that mysterious family which just moved into the house across the street. You don't know where they came from or why they're here. So what do you do? Go up to their door, say hi, and invite them over for dinner? No, of course not, because that would break stranger danger rule number one. You don't talk to strangers. They could be dangerous. Second, an exile is unwelcome. First Peter 4, verse 3 reads, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
These believers had separated themselves from their past lives of immorality. They didn't go to those same old parties anymore. So how did their neighbors respond? Do the believers get a pat on the back or at least a nod of respect? No, they were mocked and ridiculed. Third, an exile is untrustworthy. All over the Roman Empire, these believers were being slandered and reviled by their neighbors. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And 3.16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Their names were constantly being dragged through the mud. And the only way these believers could counteract that slander was through holy living. But even when they did that, their efforts weren't enough. Because fourth, an exile is unimportant. They were treated as lower class citizens. The more they tried to do, the more unjustly they were treated. 2.19 says, For this is a gracious thing, one mindful of God. One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. In verse 20, continues the same thing. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Remember that neighbor family across the street? Now, picture what this would be like in Peter's day, what it would be like if you were that strange neighbor in the 60s AD. You've just heard the good news about Jesus Christ, and after believing, you immediately turned away from your old life. You stopped worshiping in pagan temples, you stopped indulging in every kind of impurity, and you no longer attend the same parties that you used to go to. And your neighbors take notice. At first, they are surprised. Why don't you join us? It'll be fun. And then when you don't respond, they begin to make fun of you. And then when you still don't join in, things get ugly. They make it their life mission to tear your reputation to pieces. They will find any sin, any inconsistency in your life so they can expose it and humiliate you. Even when you continue to obey Christ, they just keep waiting for you to slip up, eager for you to make one mistake so they can call you a hypocrite, a fake, a pretender. And in the background is always the shadow of greater persecution to come. You're warned by Peter in verse, verse 12 of chapter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Fiery trials are on their way. Not only will you be excluded, slandered, and reviled for the Lord's sake, but you may even be killed in the persecution to come. And so Peter gives you one hope, one fact, to look to in the midst of your suffering, and that hope is the coming of Christ. First Peter 1 Peter 1.13 opens up this hope. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the hope laced throughout the book, the only hope that you can have as an exile, that Christ is coming, and He is coming soon. And this is where our passage begins. So if you are not there already, turn back to 1 Peter 4. The purpose of this passage is to teach you five ways to prepare your fellow exiles for the end. Five ways to prepare your fellow exiles for the end. First, be sober in prayer. Second, be stretched in love. Third, be satisfied in hospitality. Fourth, be stewards of grace. And fifth, be set on glory.
First way to prepare your fellow exiles for the end. Be sober in prayer. 1 Peter 4, verse 7 reads, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There are two commands here, but they are two ways of saying the same thing. To be self-controlled means to be in a right state of mind. In other words, it means you're thinking straight. To be sober-minded could be literally used to speak of not being drunk, but here it's used as a metaphor, be be clear-headed. So the two-fold command is think straight and be clear-headed. Why should you be clear-headed and thinking straight? Peter answers, for the sake of your prayers. This means that the way you think changes the way you pray. And if you think right, you will pray better. But how do you think right? What are you supposed to be thinking about when you pray? Some of you may have noticed the connecting word, therefore, in verse 7. And as you good, fit, and fat students have noticed from your Bible study practice, whenever you see the word therefore, what do you ask? What's the therefore, therefore? If you look back to the first phrase, the therefore is there to connect you back to the phrase, the end of all things is at hand. If you understand what this phrase means, then you will be clear-headed and thinking right, and you will be able to pray the way that you should. This will take some time to explain, but follow closely and I think you will understand. This phrase, the end of all things, does not mean quite what you expect. When we talk about something ending, we usually mean that it is stopping, going away, ceasing to exist. If this were the case, then when Peter says, the end of all things, he would be talking about the entire universe building up. Which, if you want to read Second Peter 3 another time, is pretty much what will happen. But there's another way to understand the word end. It is the end goal. It's like the end of a story, the moment you've been waiting for that's finally going to pull everything together. All of the seemingly random events that have taken place in the story are finally going to come together in one cohesive plot. So, when Peter says the end of all things, he is talking about the goal, the end game. But what is that goal? Look a few verses earlier at verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now, here's the end, the goal, in verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end goal is when both those alive today and those who have already died will stand before the judge to give an account for their lives. To put it bluntly, it's not just the end of history. It's the end of you. Turn over to John 5. This passage explains exactly what that final judgment will look like. But there's a plot twist. God the Father is not the judge. God the Son is. To those who believed His words, He will resurrect them to life. And those, to those who do not believe His words, He will resurrect them to judgment. John 5, beginning in verse 22, it reads, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Turn back to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Do you understand what's going on here? You are thinking about the coming judgment, the day when all people, living, dead, righteous, unrighteous, will stand before the Son in judgment. This is the day when you must give an account for every action, word, thought, and motive. As Paul says in Romans 14:12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. How does that affect your prayers? Is your thinking a little more clear? Are your prayers a little less distracted? I think you will find that if you consciously bring to mind your coming judgment, which is the end goal, your prayers will be more focused and more effective. So the first way to prepare your fellow exiles for the end, be sober in prayer. Second, be stretched in love. Peter continues in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all can be translated, first of all, meaning now that you have the sober mindset in your prayers, the first thing you should be doing and praying for is to keep loving one another earnestly. The word earnestly here means literally to be stretched out, strained, pushed to the limit. It was a word used to describe the taut muscles of an athlete who strains to win a race. And why does it take so much effort? Why is holding on to love for one another so hard? And why is it so important? Peter continues, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't think this needs to really be clarified, but Peter is not talking about forgiveness of sins before God. He's not saying that if we love one another, God will cover our sins. What he's talking about is forgiveness toward one another. This verse is actually not original to Peter. It's a quote from Proverbs ten twelve. Some of your translations may even have this verse in quotes. Proverbs ten twelve reads, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Sometimes, understanding the opposite of a thing clarifies what the thing means. In this case, the opposite of love is hatred, and the opposite of covering offenses is to stir up strife. So when Peter instructs you to cover a multitude of sins, what this means is that you do not keep track of each other's weaknesses, faults, mistakes, and failings. Remember how the pagans in Peter's day were trying to find any little inconsistency in the believers' lives so that they could accuse them of sin and humiliate them? Unbelievers aren't the only ones who do this. We do it too. Imagine this. You overhear a conversation between two people. One of them says, Mashed potatoes are my favorite food in the whole world. This sparks your memory exactly two years and three months ago. This individual said that fried chicken was their favorite food. You think to yourself, 
Their testimony is inconsistent. <laughs> that is a lie, if ever I heard one. So what will you do? Maybe you confront this person, demanding that they repent of their wickedness, and perhaps you will forgive them. <laughs> or maybe you will talk about it with all your friends, making sure everyone understands exactly how serious this offense was. Or maybe you just keep it to yourself, saving it for a rainy day. Who knows? They might point out one of your inconsistencies one day, and you'll need this little memory to launch a counterattack. But what does love do? Love covers the offense. It really means to cover something up, to hide it. Or, as one definition puts it memorably, it means to throw a veil of oblivion over it. Just love that phrase. There's a reason Peter puts this command first of all. Because the next two commands are going to involve a lot of interaction with one another, which means there is a lot of potential for hurt feelings and offended friends. It's going to take genuine, earnest, and even stretched love to cover every offense that might come up. So first, be sober in prayer. Second, be stretched in love. Third, be satisfied in hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Focus on the without grumbling part for a minute. To grumble means to murmur, to whisper complaints. Or, as another memorable definition puts it, the expression of secret and sullen discontent. Do you see why you must put on love first? Why you must be ready to cover every offense? Because if you don't, you're going to grumble. You'll go through the motions of hospitality, but your heart won't be in it. You'll just silently stew in your own bitterness. Now, what exactly is this hospitality? You've probably heard, and I've even said before, that this means to be a friend to strangers. And that is true, especially in the context of qualifications for elders. But in this context, hospitality means just what you expect it to, to have people into your home. This is how Peter's readers would have understood it. During this time of persecution, believers were often forced to flee from their homes and to move from a different city. That meant that there were a lot of believers looking for a different home. The kindest thing that you could do to help them was to open your own home to them. Of course, you could also open up your home to unbelievers if you wanted, but Peter's first concern was for brothers and sisters in Christ. Obviously, your situation is a little different for a couple of reasons. Homeless Christians are not as common around here as in the Roman Empire. Also, more to the point, you are in junior high and high school. As far as I know, you do not own a home. <laughs> but there is one thing you do have. And that is the fact that you are not alone. You are part of a body. Three times in this passage, Peter uses the word one another. Keep loving one another. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another. This word for one another is not the same as each other. When you say each other, you are focusing on the individual, each person in particular. But the word Peter uses here could be translated as yourselves. Keep loving yourselves. Show hospitality to yourselves. Serve yourselves. Now, in case you think that sounds really selfish, this is how Romans 12, verses 4 through 5, describes our relationship to one another. And I'll read that passage to you. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Though we are individuals, 
we're also members, like we're different parts of the body, like an arm is not a leg, a leg is not a head, you know, every person is different. So, but when you are showing hospitality to yourselves, it's like showing hospitality to different members of the same body. But back to our original question, how can you, junior high and high schoolers, not owning a home, show hospitality to one another? It's easy. Every time you gather together is an opportunity to show hospitality. This morning is an opportunity. After the main service is an opportunity. How about evening service, or in this case, choir rehearsal? (laughs) Thursday anchored? Tuesday frisbee? How about when you actually do have one another into your home? You may not own a home, but you still live in one. So whenever you gather together, whether at church, at home, or wherever it may be, That is an opportunity to show hospitality to one another. But how, you might ask? What can I do to be showing hospitality to others? And how can I do this in a way that lovingly covers all of their offenses? I'm glad you are asking such good questions today, because our next point is the answer to your question. First, be sober in prayer. Second, be stretched in love. Third, be satisfied in hospitality. Fourth, be stewards of grace. Verse 10 continues, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter says that every believer has received a gift. This isn't just any gift. This is what's known as a spiritual gift. It will be worth our time to explain a few points on the basics of spiritual gifts. Let me give you five descriptions of a spiritual gift. First, a spiritual gift is a special talent or ability. This is the word charisma. It sounds a lot like our English word charisma, but don't let that confuse you. The meaning is totally different. It means a gracious gift. It's very similar to the word charis. So you have charis and charisma. Charis means grace. Charisma is gracious gift. While grace could be referring to a large category of things, it could be God's grace in salvation, his grace in daily provision, his grace in sanctification. And charisma can often have the same meaning. But in this case, it means a special talent or ability. It's not just any type of grace, any general grace. It is very specific, very focused on one thing. Peter does not say how many gifts each believer has. But he assumes that each person has at least one. Second thing that you need to know about spiritual gifts. There are many spiritual gifts. In verse 10, Peter calls it God's varied grace, meaning there are many varieties. No two believers have the exact same gifts or combination of gifts. Turn to Romans 12. This is going to be really helpful. We read this passage a little bit earlier, but now I want to continue on in it to show you a few examples of spiritual gifts. Romans 12, beginning in verse 3, says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, 
the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In this passage alone, we see seven examples of spiritual gifts. Prophesying, serving, teaching, exhorting, contributing, leading, and doing acts of mercy. By the way, if you're confused about the prophesying thing, that does not mean just to predict the future. It means to speak God's word on his behalf. In the Old Testament and in the early, early church, God spoke directly to prophets who then repeated his words to the people. Now that we have a completed Bible, we simply read God's words and explain the meaning. That's prophesying. You may know it better as the gift of preaching. There were also other miraculous gifts, such as speaking in tongues, interpretation, or even healing. But those gifts have faded away and are no longer necessary now that we have a completed Bible. If you really want to talk about it, though, I would be happy afterwards to have Pastor David explain it to you. (laughs) But for our purposes today, we're going to focus on the spiritual gifts which believers still have today. Third thing that you need to know about spiritual gifts. There are two types of spiritual gifts, speaking and serving. Turn back to 1 Peter 4. Unlike Paul, Peter was a straightforward type of guy. He didn't make anything more complicated than it needed to be. So to sum up every imaginable spiritual gift, he puts them in two simple categories, speaking and serving. Out of the seven gifts we saw in Romans 12, three of them are speaking gifts, prophesying, teaching, and exhorting. These, are gifts, these gifts are all about words, something you do with your mouth. The other four gifts in Romans 12 are serving, contributing, which means to give, leading, and doing acts of mercy. These gifts are all about actions, doing something with your hands. Let's start with speaking gifts. 1 Peter 4.11 continues, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, that word oracles might seem a little strange to you, and it is. You might be imagining some pagan ritual, but there's just not a very good word for it. What it what it means is not that we're speaking directly from like from God. It's not like a revelation from heaven given to us. What Peter is referring to is our daily speech, the words that we say to one another on a daily basis. And his point is that the words that we speak should be consistent with what God would say. It should be as if it were coming from God's word. That's what it means to speak as if they are oracles of God. Let me give you an example. Say you have the gift of exhortation, which means to encourage others. What kinds of words would you use? These would be words that build up, not that tear down. These would be words that are given in the right time and season. These would be words spoken in love, compassion, and care, not in hardness or roughness. Most of all, these would be words that are true. They are not personal opinions. They are real truths grounded in Scripture. But this gift of exhortation displays itself differently in every person. For some of you, you might be the counseling type, who, when you ask someone how they're doing and they respond, fine, you reply, no, how are you really doing? (laughs) Others of you might be the counseling type, or the encouraging type, sorry, who, when you see someone who's looking glum, you go to cheer them up. Or how about this, some of you are the musical type, when when you sing in the choir or play in the band, you are practicing the gift of exhortation because you are communicating 
God's truth to others in song. Now, what about serving gifts? This category is self-explanatory. Holding babies in the nursery, wrestling toddlers in the twos and threes, painting walls in the new facility, pushing buttons on the soundboard, giving to the building fund, praying for missionaries, taking out the trash. Anything you do to help the body of Christ, anything with your hands, is service. That's a gift of service. Fourth thing you need to know about spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gift is not for you. Going back to verse 10, it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. It's easy to think highly of ourselves because of our gifts. We start comparing ourselves to others, trying to figure out who has the best gift. We start, we, we just think, I have to have the best gift. But that's not the purpose. In fact, God designed us to be dependent on one another. Nobody has all the gifts. We need one another. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Fifth thing you should know about spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts are owned by another. Verse 10 of 1 Peter 4 reads, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. A steward owns nothing. A steward is only a manager of that which belongs to another. A good steward never seeks his own desire. He always obeys the will of his master. In the same way, you do not own your spiritual gifts. You are simply stewards. Now remember this. The whole passage is set against the backdrop of coming judgment when all people will give an account to God for their actions. This is good news for those of you who are believers because it means God will reward you for your work. If you use your gifts to serve others as good stewards of His grace, He will remember and He will repay you many times more in heaven for your faithful service. We've looked today at four ways to prepare your fellow exiles for the end. Be sober in prayer. Be stretched in love. Be satisfied in hospitality. Be stewards of grace. Finally, be set on glory. Peter finishes in verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You are set not, on, not just on any glory, but on God's glory. God deserves glory because everything is his work from beginning to end. Although we skimmed over this phrase earlier, I want to point out that Peter says, whoever serves, serves by the strength that God supplies. You see, Peter removes every possible reason for pride. Your gifts aren't from you. They're not for you. And they're not even through you, because God is the one strengthening you to use your gifts for one another. Because of this, all the glory belongs to Him. Now, maybe I, I should have told you this at the beginning of our time, but I'll tell you now. Our passage is only part two of a two-part series. 
The previous passage, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, is part 1. Verse 5 connects the two together. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 5. Verse 5 says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Part 1 is for unbelievers. Part 2 is for believers. Both are waiting to give an account to Christ, and both will be rewarded according to their deeds. For unbelievers, those described in verses 1 through 6, they will suffer eternal punishment for their sins. For believers, those described in verses 7 through 11, they will enjoy eternal reward for their obedience. But how do you move from part 1 to part 2? How do you switch from unbeliever to believer? Verse 6 provides the bridge between the two. Verse 6 says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. What does it mean to be judged in the flesh or to live in the Spirit? Chapter 3, verse 18 is a parallel passage with almost the exact same wording, and I believe it explains what it means. In this passage, rather than describing our death, it's actually describing the death of Christ. It says, verse 318, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What this means is that Christ physically died and physically was raised from the dead, and in the same way, every person who puts their faith in Christ, even though they die, they also will be raised from the dead. Not only that, but He will raise them to everlasting life with Him, never to die again. So when Peter opens verse 7 saying, The end of all things is at hand, the believer has great joy and great soberness at the same time. Joy, because our salvation is coming. When we stand before Christ in heaven, we will no longer be exiles, unknown, unwelcome, untrustworthy, unimportant. We will be rewarded as faithful stewards of His grace. Yet at the same time, we have soberness, because we have work to do. And this work must be done in order. You cannot be set on glory unless you are stewards of grace. You cannot be stewards of grace unless you are stretched in love. You cannot be stretched in love unless you are satisfied in hospitality. And most of all, you cannot be satisfied in hospitality unless you are sober in prayer. It all starts with this sober, prayerful mindset. So if you remember one thing from today, remember this. You will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who do not believe will experience everlasting torment, but those who do believe will experience everlasting joy. Therefore, because the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Then and only then will you be able to show hospitality, love, and service to one another, all to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for this word that we've heard today and that you have given us the sober mindset that judgment is coming, that the Son of God himself will raise all people, believers and unbelievers, and they will stand before him one day, unbelievers to be receive the judgment and believers to receive the reward. I pray that for those who do not know you, help them to accept the gospel so that even even though they die, yet they will, will live because you will raise them from the dead. 
For those who are our believers, give them the sober mindset. Help them no longer to walk through life just serving themselves. Help them to understand that the end is coming and that you, you, have, you have called us, as simple as it may sound, just to serve one another. That is what you want us to do in the time that we have here on earth, is to love one another, to show hospitality, to serve. And that is what will bring you glory in the end. But you would help each one of us. Give us a love that's stretched, that is able to cover every offense. Help us to cover every offense with that love as we show hospitality to one another. Help us to welcome the unwelcome, to be kind to one another. Help us even as we come into this new building in the coming weeks. Help us to use our gifts that you've given us, not to serve ourselves, but to serve the body. Who are We are all members of the same body. And I pray that we do it by the strength that you supply, and that in the end, when we stand before you, that every one of us would stand approved, and that when we give an account for our lives, that you would, you would be pleased, and that we would enjoy eternal life with you. Amen.